Hi. So Nettie told him uh, to be sure to use the horn, but it was a different kind. Turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. So, uh, good morning. I'm excited to uh, preach this passage. and The gauntlet's already been thrown down this morning from Alicia about how are you going to get through two chapters. And I have a plan. We'll see how it works out. And I will today at some point explain this mysterious title, See Can You Say? So we'll actually get there. But turn with me to Acts chapter 3. I want to say as we're starting off this morning, uh, Cam, I appreciate you and uh, I appreciate our staff. We're just really blessed uh, with all of them. I think of uh, Cam, I think of Beth and the work they do there. I thank you for those working with youth. I thank you for Alicia. I thank God for just the amazing people we have here. And I want to thank all of you for the spirit, uh, last week, you know, you were around for 45 minutes after the service. I didn't count the time, but it's just amazing to see the spirit. And I think that's a wonderful thing. And that's the kind of thing that's very attractive that draws people in. So I just want to thank you for taking the joy of the Lord and expressing it in your lives for your friendliness. Uh, it's really amazing to see. So we're very grateful for that. And uh, Ryan, appreciate the music. And whenever my last Sunday is, you know, whenever that is, I think Ryan is going to play uh, Kumbaya for me. But we're not quite there yet, but we'll see. So turn me to Acts 3 if you're not already there. And I just want to thank you again. And you've got to understand, I'm a seminary grad. We learned to alliterate. So today, I'm sorry, but I'm going to carry you through this passage with alliteration. Today's letter is the letter H. So you'll see that in just a moment. Uh, Let's uh, pray and then uh, take a look at the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for your Word. Thank you for all you say in it and how you inspire us in it. And just pray that we take this amazing passage and have it come to us uh, today in a way that brings the life out of the passage and helps us understand uh, it, but also to be excited with what we see. And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. So we have a lot of material here. I'm going to take it in sections and, and draw out some of the cool things that are happening here. The fellowship of the believers we saw recently about how day by day people were being saved. It was amazing. The body was coming together and fellowshipping with each other and supporting one another. And now, remember, there's no chapter breaks in the original Bible. So we get here in verse 1, just kind of roll right into it. Peter and John, your leading apostles at the time, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which corresponds to 3 o'clock in the afternoon our time. They had two times of prayer during the day officially, and this is the second one. And in verse 2, a man lame from birth. Why does it say he's lame from birth? Because they know he's always been lame. So I won't mention any names, but this would be like somebody on TV that does healing and everything else, and you've never seen that person in your life, but they get up and all of a sudden they're healed, and you don't know if that is really happening or not. In this case, they knew this man had been lame from birth, so uh, he... Clearly, when there's a miracle here, they know, they see it. Now, he's not totally paralyzed, but he's got a problem with his ankles and his feet. And he was being carried, and they laid him daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So he's begging for money every day, and his friends carry him there to do it. In verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, and he he got his attention. He looked at him in the eye and waited for the guy to respond. 
And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now we think about, oh, he got healed, that's the miracle. But there's more miracle than that. Um, the miracle is not just that he had healing, but that he got coordination. So he was able to leap up, and I'm not going to leap real high, you know, I don't want to knock anything over. But he was able to leap up and do all of that as a part of the miracle. He has coordination immediately. And so everybody's like, what in the world? We know this guy has been lame. And look at this. And so immediately he leaps up, verse 8, and he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with him because as a lame man, he could not enter the temple before. And now he can now, which is kind of parallel to now we can go into the temple of God, if you will, heaven, because our lameness has been cured by Jesus Christ. And he's walking and leaping and praising God. So there's no doubt what happened. This man has been healed, and he knows it. And he's not just sitting there, I was healed today, thank you so much. He's like jumping up and down all excited, and he goes into emotional overdrive, and it's fantastic. And the people recognize him. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's just incredible to see this. So it's fair to say that the ministry of the apostles was not just teaching the word, but it was meeting the needs of people. It was holistic. It was reaching out to what people needed. And, and all of that enforce, reinforces the other. And I say that because that is the New Testament concept of ministry. The teaching is important, but so is, like I said last week, the fellowship, the holistic meeting of needs. It's not one or the other. It's all of them working together. And you cannot say any different when you really study the New Testament. That's the way it is. By the way, just a little thought here before I go on. Uh, notice Peter and John go together. I believe the New Testament pattern is people ministering in pairs. Billy Graham, you know the story, Billy Graham, he was very careful to have the men with him at all times, and they ministered together, and there's protection in that. And because of our modern American uh, celebrityhood, you know, we want celebrity pastors and everything else, and we set them up for failure uh, because we've forgotten about team ministry. We've forgotten about it's not just about one person. But I digress, but not really. So back in chapter 3, uh, everybody's amazed. And so verse 11, he clung to Peter and John, probably because he wanted people to see, these are the guys that healed me. And all the people utterly astounded. I mean, you can't emphasize that enough. People are blown away because they know this man was lame. They ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So let's uh, shift gears for just a second, and let's, uh, let's show you where this is. We're in Jerusalem. The meeting place we'll see in this passage, the Temple Mount and in homes. This is not an actual photograph of the Temple of Herod, but this is a model in Jerusalem that's really cool to see. I think it's huge. And it's a model of the Herodian Temple Complex during the time of Herod, in other words, the time of the New Testament. And you see a big portico to the left there with the red tile roof. Solomon's portico would have been that part in the front there by uh, near the eastern gate, basically the front part. There's a colonnade there, and that's where Solomon's portico was. The temple building itself, which was made after the Old Testament uh, 
dimensions. That's in the middle there, very tall buildings, pretty amazing. So that's the temple compound from another angle. Um, you get an idea of the scale of this thing. When you look in the upper left-hand corner, you might be able to see two men up there. You see them leaning over, looking. So the thing is huge. And you see how the walls were very tall. So when Satan took Jesus up on the temple and he said, you know, cast yourself down, you'll be, <laughs> you'll be protected, uh, that was a real genuine temptation because you did have these really tall walls. And before I go on, the Wailing Wall, also known as the Western Wall, is on the back side of the Temple Mount. That was the retaining wall for the temple. Nothing is left of the temple today in AD 70. The Romans threw the blocks over the side and they were massive, but they destroyed the temple. It does not exist today, but the closest you can get is on the back side there, the retaining wall of the original temple. So that's what we have. So the audience is the Jews and their leaders. And what we're going to see is Peter and John are going into what I called last week that middle space where a believer enters a space with unbeliever. And they're going to present the gospel in the context of the people that are there, which is the Jews and the Jewish leaders. And so the first thing we see, and this is where I'm going to alliterate today. If you want to take notes, I think I've got seven of these. But the first one, the first H is healing. We have the healing of the man in verses 1 through 10. So after the healing, now we have the hearkening. And everybody is now drawn to this. And when Peter sees all these people flocking to it, he addressed the people and they are hearkening to his word and he is calling them forward to hear. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, in other words, the God you know from your word, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you de delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. I cannot emphasize enough. This is Peter who turned tail and ran the night Jesus was betrayed. In fact, Peter betrayed him. This is the Peter who, like with the other disciples, turned into a coward that night and ran from Jesus and denied with profanity that he knew Jesus. And now this Peter, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, is able to stand up boldly in front of people who could kill him and tell them, you crucified the Messiah that you've been wanting. Verse 14, you just denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We saw it. You saw it. You were here. This happens not that long after the crucifixion of Christ when the nation said, let him be crucified. We'd rather have Barabbas, who was a, not just a criminal, he was an insurrectionist, he was a murderer, and you chose him over the Messiah. In verse 16, his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. You cannot deny it. You have seen it. You saw yourselves crucify Jesus. Now you've seen this man be healed in front of you. You know he was lame. You have seen it. What are you going to do? And he says in verse 17, I know you acted in ignorance as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, 
he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come for the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Christ means Messiah, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And he goes to, refers to Moses, Deuteronomy 18. Okay, the idea of blot out, understand, this is a beautiful thing. In the ancient world, when they would write, the surfaces that they, that they wrote on, pardon me, did not absorb the ink. And so they could erase them by washing them off. And that's the word that Peter uses in the Greek. That's basically what it means, is that God took your sins and washed them off of the paper. They are gone. They are done. They cannot be seen. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That God did that for you and me, and he did it for these people, and Peter is giving the nation a chance to repent while they can, even though they crucified the one that died for them. And when he says times are refreshing, he's not going to a lot of detail about this, but he's basically saying refreshing the idea is sometimes it's used for like a cool drop of water that helps you on a hot day like yesterday. But that there will come a time when the Messiah returns and you will meet him. It will be a time of refreshing for you. The Messiah will come, that is prophesied, and you can meet him, and you'd much rather meet him with refreshment than the alternative, and that's what Peter is saying. But the clock is ticking, Israel. You don't have a lot of time. In verse 23, it shall be every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, Samuel is a prophet associated with David, so this is significant, Jesus, the son of David. They proclaim these days, verse 25, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant. And in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, God said to Abraham. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the year we believe, A.D. 30. In the year A.D. 70, in August of A.D. 70, the Roman army sacked Jerusalem, killed We think some two million took them into captivity, the ones that weren't killed. And that was the dispersion where the Jews went around the world. Thousands, millions of them. Do the math. How many years do they have left as a nation? 37 years. The clock is ticking. That's a generation. You guys need to respond now. That's what he says. And so how are they going to respond? It's up to them. Well, it's so classic. Some people are going to respond, and then the people in power don't like it. And so go to chapter 4. Now we see the disciples, or the apostles, hauled in. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, here come the priests, you know, the priests of Judaism, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees. Captain of the temple probably was Jewish, not Roman. And so basically the religious leaders came up to them, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. You have a hint here, by the way, if you're not aware of this, of the whole thing about persecution. What I found working with Voice of the Martyrs is a lot of times the reason we have persecution is because the believers are actually an irritation to the society. The society wants them to kind of toe the line not get out of line, not stir up trouble, not believe in something different. Often it's not that they're trying to kill Christianity, it's that they're trying to rope in the malcontents from their perspective. 
the Romans wanted peace and the Jews were like, we better be careful, the Romans will get upset with us. And they wanted to suppress this, plus they know what the apostles were saying. They, they said, you killed Jesus, and now you're saying he rose from the dead. This is going to stir the country up in a major way. So verse 3, what do you do? The authorities always seem to do this. They cracked down. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But you know, you can't crush the gospel. The gospel has a power in itself. I just finished Eric Metaxas's book on Martin Luther, and something he said in there is that truth and power do not go along together. The only time they will is when the Messiah returns. But until then, they just don't jihad very well together. And we see that right here. They try to crush the truth, but you can't. But many heard and believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Thank you, Barbara. Now, on the day of Pentecost, how many came to Christ? 3,000! Now we have another 8,000. So that means the structure of the church is, right now, 12 apostles and some 8,500 plus followers. Let's do the math. First of all, Acts chapter 1, the growth report, they started out with 120. That wasn't much. Now we're up to around 8,500 or more. We don't know the exact number. From here on, we really won't. Isn't that amazing? What's really amazing, though, is to run the numbers. If you look at the ratio, that means for every original believer in the church, that original 120, there are now 70 newbies. If this happened at FRAC, which we have around 140 right now attending, depending, we grow almost overnight to 9,800 people. It's staggering. That's why I say we're going to need a bigger covered dish. We're going to need a bigger coffee shop. Isn't that amazing? What would we do? And so I think it's just awesome to see the church growing. It grows like a weed, if you will. I shouldn't say that in Colorado. I didn't mean it that way. I'm so sorry. So that's the growth report. Now for the hearing, let's look at verse 5, chapter 4. So on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. All right, these are the high and mighty people, with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Seriously, you can go into Caiaphas's house in Jerusalem, the basement? Um, it's amazing to be in that basement to know that's probably where Jesus was incarcerated the night before he was killed. John and Alexander, the priestly family, they put him in the midst and they said, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What's the problem here? A man's been healed. Is this a problem? Well, of course it is, the authorities. 
Verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. I want to go back for a second. Sorry, way back. Can you imagine what the word cornerstone means in the context of a massive edifice like this? It's huge. Jesus is the cornerstone of all. In verse 12, this classic verse, this is the context. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. A lot of great leaders over the years, but none have died for your and my sins like Jesus of Nazareth. And for those of you watching online, uh, and for any of you in here, um, this is something to consider. Have you thought about this, the fact that Jesus is the only one who could have died for you? He died to give you eternal life. That's it. God's offered it to you through Jesus. And you have a chance to receive him just like these people did. They had 37 years left before the destruction of their nation, but some of them died before that, and we don't know how much time we have. So take this seriously. This is the name. There is no other. And so when they saw the boldness, and these are the guys who ran for Jesus, I love it, and they perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. See, that word keeps popping up. And seeing the man who was healed, they had nothing to say in opposition. They know the man was healed. And so this is classic authority crackdown in verse 15. I mean, isn't this classic when they had commanded them to leave the council? They conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? We know we can deny there's a notable sign. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Y'all stop, will you? So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Like the disciples and apostles are going to do this? But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, I mean, that's so classic. They let them go, finding no way to punish them. Now, y'all behave. Now, we're watching. The people were praising God, and the man was 40 years old, so they knew this was a miracle. The apostles saw. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They could not help but speak about what they had seen. Has anyone in here seen the saving power of Jesus Christ? If you and I are going to be like the apostles, we cannot help but share what we have seen. Which is why the title of the sermon today is a little cumbersome, but it is, See, Can You Say? It's easy to see, but do you have the courage to speak and to say what you've seen? So all this is going on, and they're being faithful to the Lord, and I want to read this next section, and I want to share a few uh, thoughts of application. Where are we, by the way? Hearing. And the heart of the apostles is to obey and speak. They tried to be held back by the authorities, but they won't be. And now the Holy Spirit enters. So in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, 
who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the rulers, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Got to mention it. The death of Jesus was predestined by God. Don't ever forget, God chose for his son to die for you. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed throughout the, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And I love this, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In their prayer and in their obedience, the Holy Spirit came in and the building was shaken. And they could feel it. They knew it. And you've got to be careful with this, of course, but uh, you do wonder, when was the last time we were shaken? It's so easy to take this for granted. Now, I believe the Holy Spirit had come into them before, but there's a special power here, and that special power breaks out at different times, and it breaks out here. And the church is shaken. We're going to have a prayer time after the service, and, and uh, I am not praying for like some supernatural crazy thing to happen. That's not for me to say. That's for God. But don't take God's power lightly. And I'm afraid far too often we pray like cowards. Oh God, if it's your will, forget the if it's your will. That's weak. Take that out of there. Obviously, if it's his will, he's going to do it. But God says, knock on the door, pound boldly. I think I mentioned this before. If I haven't, Matthew, remember what Jesus said when you pray? Knock on that door. I'll never forget having a drill instructor tell us, you need to wake me up. Knock on that door so loudly you knock it off the hinges. And I had to wake him up at 4 in the morning one morning. I'm like, I'm about to die. And I hit it as hard as I could. And he said, thank you. And that's the way God is with our prayer. Knock so loudly you knock the door off hinges. And we say, well, that's not faith. We need to just say if it's God's will. No, God's will is for you to pray and knock the door down. And we need to pray for that as a church. And I know I'm coming across strong today. I don't care. I want to because I want to wake us up and say the American church is passive. It's insipid. We don't pray. We don't pray like they did. We wonder where the power is. We wonder why we don't God see working in our midst. Well, we know why because we're not doing what they did. And we have the same Holy Spirit today. Am I right? I want to share a few things before we uh, come to a close. We're going to have a prayer time today. First of all, this is a shift a little bit. I want to share with you, I've been giving you points about the infant church, and I think these things are really important. Number 30, we're going to make this long list, but number 30, the focus was on Jesus. The focus was on Jesus. The power was in Jesus. It wasn't about them. That's one of the nice things of going out two by two is that it's not about you, it's about Jesus. Their commitment to Christ and to the body was ongoing. We see that throughout this passage. 
they use different approaches to present the gospel depending on the context. Now this is what I want you to think about today. It's that depending on the audience, they would use a different approach. Take a look at Acts 17, Paul in Athens and how he approached them. The way they approach them now is a little different than what they did before in Acts. And we need to realize that because we think there's one monolithic way to present the gospel. And so number 34, they varied the terms when they told people how to respond to the gospel. Sometimes it was exercise faith, sometimes it was repentance. It just kind of depended on the situation. And number 35, the Holy Spirit had filled them, but he also empowered them in special ways. You know, as things have changed in our society, we have to think about this. Uh, when I was in high school in our youth program, we were trained in the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade. How many of y'all were trained in the four spiritual laws? You got the little uh, beige booklet, you know, you knew what to do. I'll never forget uh, one time when it didn't go so well for me. Our youth program went from Florida up to Atlanta to do a missions uh, trip in the, it was a choir tour mission trip in what at the time was the worst part of Atlanta, which ironically years later Susie and I moved into. And we went, I believe it was to the DeKalb County Jail one night to witness to the prisoners. And I'll never forget that I was trying to give the four spiritual laws to this guy. And it was crazy. All he seemed to want to do was to look at the cute girls from the youth program. In the room, I was like, this is not going so well. Dude, you're supposed to be listening to me. And we kind of came from that forensic approach to the gospel where we train people in the four spiritual laws in a factual-based society, a modern society, and that's kind of how you did it. America has turned into a postmodern society, and the view of truth is different. Plus, we've seen with our politicians, and unfortunately even in the ministry, that leaders and authorities cannot be trusted. So there's much less uh, inclination to trust those who are over us, and that's just where our society is. So, I want to encourage you, I want, you know, I want to liberate you this morning. Um, when you get people to say the four spiritual laws, they kind of stiffen up and they're like, All right, what was point number two? I need to remember that exactly. Anybody remember what point number two was? All right, good. All right, one person knows. You know, it kind of stumbles around in your brain. What I want to encourage you to do is tell something that's right at the tip of your tongue that you know you can tell. It's your story. This is where my life was. Whatever your life was. It was bad. Things were not going well. I realized I had a problem. And then God stepped in. Tell your story, tell the story you can tell with passion, and then relate the points of the gospel to it. I realized that I was a sinner in need of salvation. It's kind of interesting uh, to, to read on this. I'd like to share something with you, and we got time. Um, it's not next Sunday yet. There's a, a book that's been published. Of course, there's always books coming out, and I try to find them. But it's, it's really interesting. I've just gotten it. I have not read the book, but I saw a summary, and I'd like to share it with you. I think it would be helpful. Sam Chan has written, Evangelism in a Skeptical World, How to Make the Unbelievable News About Jesus More Believable. And I saw online a, 
uh, summary of it called 12 Ways Evangelism is Changing. And I'd like to just read a few thoughts from that to you. In the Bible, there is no single method of communicating the gospel. Instead, there is a variety of methods. You know, you think about it, the four spiritual laws did not exist as a booklet during the New Testament. And yet, somehow, thousands and millions of people came to Christ. In the New Testament, you see parables by Jesus, one-on-one conversations, discussion meetings, public speeches, and miracles. Evangelism is a lifestyle, not a one-time activity. It's not like occasionally we add evangelism into our life, but evangelism is our lifestyle. It's how we live our very lives, and that's what the world is watching, and that's why hypocrisy is such a dangerous thing. I think this is really uh, interesting, too. I think this is useful to us. Various evangelism methods have emphasized differing benefits from salvation, deliverance from hell. Well, now that assumes that somebody believes hell actually exists. Forgiveness of sins, that assumes that you think you have sins that needed to be forgiven, which in the age of self-help, a lot of people don't buy. We're all good. But the umbrella metaphor for all of these salvation metaphors is peace or shalom. Eternity is a time of peace. Everybody wrestles with life. I think about so often that promise of the vine and the fig tree. Now, I know that we talk about how those things will be fulfilled in the future. We'll figure it out someday when God shows us. But, but the bottom line is there's a promise of the vine and the fig tree. In other words, you have peace. And that's awesome. Uh, one of my professors who was head of the Old Testament department at Dallas used to put it this way. It's the word shalom in the Hebrew. And he said, the best way I can put the meaning of shalom is this. It's what the astronauts used to say. Everything is A-okay. That's eternity. Everything is A-okay. We're at peace with the Lord. We're at peace with each other. Don't you want that? Don't you think most people do? Every heart does. And I think this is fascinating, and it's really fascinating in light of some of the things we preached about recently. Let me read this to you. Absorb it. Think about it. We should also emphasize sin differently. Given that the Western world is moving away from the guilt model of sin, since people no longer believe in absolutes, Chan suggests we should emphasize shame when we talk about sin. Did Christ die to redeem your shame, or did he die to redeem your guilt? correct answer is yes. He said, I've been using the language of shame. We have shamed God. We have not been honoring God. And the room is silent. All eyes are on me. They get it. It's personal. He also contends, you'll have to think about this, it might be more helpful not to use the word sin at all. Not only because Jesus himself often doesn't use the word sin to describe sin, But as with other words in English whose meanings have changed over time, such as thong, gay, dumb, we can't expect our listeners to hear the intended meaning when we use it. So let me wrap this up here in a second. But at some stage in the last few decades, we moved away from foundationalist reasoning and we became suspicious of narratives, meta-narratives, and claims of ultimate truth 
We moved away from the age of, alter of modernity into the age of postmodernity. The methods of evangelism that worked so well in the 1980s no longer had the same appeal in the 2000s. I think this is a big test for us. We used to ask, is it true? Now people ask, is it real in our lives? Which means a postmodern person is less likely to be persuaded by our clever arguments, but they might be persuaded by our life story. But do we walk the walk as we talk the talk? So to close that out, it, we used to say this is true. If it's true, you must believe it. If you believe it, you must now live it. What he recommends now is to say to someone, the Christian life is livable. If it's livable, it's also believable. If it's believable, then it's also true. I just find it really interesting, all this stuff going on and you know, thinking about that. Uh, last week I mentioned uh, our local uh, anchor, Diane Derby, and she had written a book, and uh, we messaged a bit about it this week. And this week she told me in a message, Jesus keeps supersizing my life, and I am along for the ride. Jesus is the only way out of the shame. He is the God of a million second chances, and I am the proof of that. So as you talk with your neighbors and your friends, I'd just like to encourage you to maybe see if you can leverage this idea of shame a little bit, because everybody's got stuff they're shamed about. And they may blow off the idea that they're sinners, but when you ask somebody, do you have shame in your life? I think that hits the heart. Something to think about. Father God, thank you so much for your word. You've made us think. We want to reach this world. We want to share what we know. But sometimes we just want to hit them over the head with the four spiritual laws, and, and maybe we need to open up our lives and say, you know, God redeem me from my shame. And he can do it for you as well. Father, I pray that every one of us would take seriously this, that we would take seriously the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst, that we would pray like we believe it, that we would pray like we have this atomic force at our disposal, that we would share with our family and our friends as if it mattered, as if there were going to be a time of judgment for the world, as if they had shame that needed to be restored and redeemed, Father, we preach it. Do we take it seriously? Speak to us today in Jesus' name.